It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. And in honor of uh, cicadas everywhere across the United States, I uh, decided to put the uh, picture of the grasshopper. The grasshopper. Yeah. So. Thank uh, you, grasshopper. And uh, and good morning, everybody. The, the day after uh, for me, but not for you, Peggy, unfortunately, which is to say the day after I actually had rain, which is uh, pretty amazing stuff. Rain? Yeah, I know, and I feel I feel bad that that you didn't get it, and that's the nature of this drought. Chicago got I got about eight tenths of an inch in my backyard. We'll we'll be talking. Uh, by the way, Ricky D is back on the show today. Yay! All right, and uh, we'll be t- he's he's got maps. We've got uh, drought maps and for the, the rest of the country, but also for the Midwest and. Uh, We'll ask him, you know, what changes because we got a little bit of rain and probably not a lot, uh, except my own backyard. All I can say is I'm just <laughs> I'm gonna, concentrated uh, right there in but, Logan Square. But what what you need to know also is that in the middle of this, my downspout uh, <laughs> came apart. Uh, so uh, it was pouring water everywhere uh, after a while. So Uh-oh. I got to go back up and uh and Got fix, your shoes wet in the process? Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit. and uh, uh-huh. But I didn't care because it felt nice. Uh, of course, I was trying to do show prep at the time, and, and suddenly now an hour, I find I'm in an hour on the back porch holding up a downspout and trying to keep the water from going, and uh, it was... It was. Uh, did you get a video of it? That's what I wanted. No, I did. No, that's the, that's the last thing that occurred to me. See, I'm for a media guy, <laughs> I'm pretty lame, all right? So... Uh, folks, uh, we are so excited uh, today uh, to have a, a very special uh, show uh, featuring uh, a couple of people who have worked in the city of Chicago and have worked in environmental matters. Um, and uh, as I said on my blog, uh, today we are talking Chicago environmental smack uh, with the experts uh, and they will be with us in just a second. They are Suzanne Malik McKenna and Sandra Henry. Uh, they both were important in guiding the city in environmental environmental matters. 
you know, we need Bill Curtis here. I, what I want to, you know what I want to have Bill Curtis say? Environmental smack. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> that sounds like something when he uh, used to do the wait, wait, don't tell me. Yeah. Sounds like something he yeah. is, is he not doing that anymore? I don't know. I don't listen I, to it anymore. Oh, okay. Somebody, somebody <laughs> will, somebody will tell what, us. What, one of our, uh, one of our listeners will definitely know. Yeah. So, in fact, they're they're talking. Wow, Dan Costa Dan says Costa. he got one point five inches of rain. Wow, you are, you were in the right place, Dan. So that's good. Mm-hmm. And Peggy, and what did you get, Peggy? Uh, nada. Zippity doo da, zippity. I went. I went to one rain gauge and checked it and said, okay, well maybe this one's got a little leak or something in it. So I went to the other one. Yeah. Nope. Nothing. nothing. Nada, and that, and and so she's Lake County. So Lake County is still parts of Lake County got water, or got rain, but not but, close to the lake. But not your backyard. So there you go. And this is the uh, these are the vagaries of um, this kind of a storm in the in the mid. And and if you look at the radar, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll do that later. Um, Rick it, just, is back. Yep. It, it just popped up over Chicago, and there was nothing else in the Midwest. And boom, just as. <laughs> big clump of storms right over the city of Chicago. And so, um, so we have two things before we get started with the show. Okay. So let's do them very quickly. Yes, Peggy. Thing. The first, um, we are, as we announced last week, we're going to be transitioning things more to YouTube. Yep. In coming weeks. So, um, if you, you haven't already watching us on YouTube, uh, Uh, if, if you haven't already go to YouTube, subscribe, hit the little bell. So you get notifications. Um, and, uh, we're sliding over there because I, you know, I could go maybe, maybe next week I'll, I'll do my rant against Facebook, uh, and, and their algorithm and how it just squashes everything down, especially if you're a business against the Facebook machine. Exactly. Um, so, uh, we are making that transition and we're just letting people know that, that at some point when you, when you go to Facebook, what you'll see is, Hey, here's the link to YouTube. Watch the show there. That's what's going to happen. Exactly. Um, all right. So that's one thing. And the other is Peggy. Chicago excellence and gardening awards, 62nd garden video challenge. There's still a couple of weeks for the spring portion of this year's challenge, which is May and June gardens through June 30th. You're going to want to go to Chicago gardening awards.org to sign up for that. It's free. Get out in your garden, get some beautiful photos, create a one-minute video, upload it, boom, done. Exactly. And uh, if you can't get it done in the next two weeks, never fear. The summer portion of it starts um, July 1st. But we want, we want to see your spring gardens. I'm sure you, if your garden looked good, you took a lot of photos, string them together into a video and uh, and and send it to us. And you could video. valuable what? <laughs> What's Stringing that? them together, wrapping oh, them oh, around yeah. each other, putting like, these like, videos. Like, like DNA, like a DNA <laughs> chain. Okay. Yes, I've got such a lag on, on vMix this morning. It's just amusing to watch that. Oh, so. I, I'm sorry. But you look good here, and uh, you seem to be in real time. So, yes, go to chicagogardeningawards.org. Uh, you still got a couple of weeks left for the spring section or session of uh, the 62nd garden video challenge and we hope you take advantage of that and win valuable wally prizes all right with that said and actually one one thing the third 
Oh, okay. If you're watching this program this morning, call all your friends, your neighbors, your kids, anybody who's on Facebook and YouTube, and let them know we're on with a fabulous show this morning. Tune in your, now. Your friends and your enemies, all right? Bring them all, because these are the people we have. On, oh, and, and I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne. You you, you almost... You just came getting in <laughs> you you almost made it on time uh and uh the, uh, the grand entrance uh from uh Suzanne Malik McKenna and uh but but Sandra was there as she needed to be thank you Sandra for being in place when the show started <laughs> you know all right I, if you might not be able to read it so I'm going to pop this up there and the title we gave to Suzanne Malik McKenna is Slayer of Multidimensional Challenges. Uh, and I decided this morning that uh, her real title is Disruptor, and you just proved it once again, Suzanne. So I like to be consistent. What can I say? You are. If, if nothing else, you are consistent. So uh, welcome, both of you, to the show. We're very excited about this. We're going to go uh, till uh, uh, 1030 here today uh, talking about a bunch of different – I didn't even get all of them. I realized I finished the blog and I posted it and I didn't get everything in there. Uh, but I, I'm hoping that some of this will, will come up during the show as uh, we discuss certain matters that will trigger conversation about other things. Um, so what I want to do here is – do a, a couple of quick uh, introductions uh, of our guests, and uh, we'll start with uh, the the woman on your left, the disruptor, um, and uh, she is Suzanne Malik McKenna, and she served the city of Chicago for 17 years, uh, first as head of the Natural Resources Division, later the Natural Resources and Water Quality Division for 13 years, working to engage Chicagoans and programs like Green Corps, which you're still involved in, right? You got uh, it. Uh, and uh, Chicago Conservation Corps, uh, and you helped develop programs like the North Park uh, Village Nature Center, the Calumet Initiative. I, I threatened that we might talk about, I know, that one is, we, we have to, we'll have to get into that because I know it's close to your heart. Um, and the Chicago Center for Green Technology. Um, and then uh, you were uh, four years commissioner of the Department of the Environment. Uh, you also oversaw permitting and enforcement, urban management, and brownfield reclamation and energy and sustainable business division. Uh, you've also worked with Chicago Wilderness, uh, Open Lands, and other environmental organizations. You're, you, you certainly uh, have your chops. Been around, baby. Yeah, been around. <laughs> you have. Uh, and, and, of course, on your right uh, is Sandra Henry. Is, and I'm going to get the title right now that I didn't do in our little promotional video that I sent out the other day. Uh, Senior Director of Energy and Sustainability at Elevate, uh, which is a, a, a not-for-profit organization that designs and implements programs to reduce costs, protect people and the environment, ensure the benefits of clean energy economy, uh, and that it reaches those uh, who need them most. Now, we, I, will, I will give you a chance to talk a little bit uh, about Elevate in a little bit, Sandra. We'll definitely get to that. Uh, but Sandra served as the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Chicago at the very end of the Rahm Emanuel administration. And folks, that's a story in itself, which we will get to. Uh, 
and you work to advance the city toward 100% clean energy by signing on to the Ready for 100 campaign, uh, committed Chicago to electrify its bus fleet uh, by 2040, and a community-wide transition to 100% renewable energy by 2035. Um, and you were also, uh, before this, back in the day, back when I was at Progresso Radio, like the soup, uh, you were the Senior Energy Efficiency Program Manager for ComEd, um, and you've uh, designed and managed energy programs for utilities in Minnesota and Illinois, and were the chair of the Chicago chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council, which is now Illinois Green Alliance, uh, from 2015 to 2016. So you also have plenty of chops, uh, Sandra. So uh, welcome. She's just not as old. She's just not as old. Uh, Yeah, but she's... uh, Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe she's just better preserved than the rest of us. I don't know. (laughs) I sleep in pickle juice every night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So what I want to how I want to start here is um, we've got some background on you, and I want you to talk uh, uh, each of you a little bit about your journey um, uh, in the environmental realm and in uh, city government. Um, Suzanne, let's let's start with you. And you, you know, I'm thinking. Just a, a few minutes of oh, kind of an, of I know. Water. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm not crying. My eyes just bugging me all of a sudden. So excuse me one moment. And yes. We, we have that effect on people sometimes. Yeah, I know. Everybody cries when they watch our show. All right. <laughs> it's so touching. <laughs> no, um, that, that's not the reason. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's, but I'm going to say this. It's funny you should say that uh, or have this happen to you because when you were on my program, at Progresso, uh, this was shortly after you found out that Rahm Emanuel was going to disband the Department of the Environment. Yep. He gave it the axe. Um, yeah. Because uh, you came out of the daily administration, and then Rahm came in and said, no, we don't need that anymore. Uh, you teared up on the show. It was a pretty yeah. emotional moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't about, you yeah. know, it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, I was there 17 years, time to move on. Yeah. But man, there were so many great things happening and such great people, you know, and I think it was just so short-sighted um, how they went about it. And um, anyway, do you, well, talk do, you, about do, you do you have any, any, oh, I, eyes. Are, you, ah. are you okay? Should we, yeah, I got let's, okay. let's start with Sandra. I'll tell you what, I'll tell <laughs> you what, we'll, we'll uh, why don't you take care of that? I'm gonna. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm not crying. <laughs> so let's let's go to Sandra then. Okay, Sandra, I'm gonna uh, even put you up here. So uh, uh, see, uh, yeah, yeah. Suzanne, go take care of business. All right. Yep. Sandra, tell us your story because uh, obviously it, it involves uh, different states and um, a decision to move to Chicago and then ending up as the uh, chief sustainability officer. Tell us a little bit about that story. Sure, Mike. Thank you. And I just want to like touch on something that Suzanne mentioned about such great people in the Department of Environment. She's absolutely right. And a lot of them are still there. So I'll get to that piece as we kind of progress through the story. But um, I'll start with the saying that you mentioned on one of your shows previously that good gardeners make good environmentalists. 
And I feel like my basis for why I'm here right now is because I'm, I love gardening and I'm an engineer. So kind of putting those two things together, it really, being a gardener helped me get in touch with what was happening in the environment. And being an engineer and working with utilities, I learned that the most, still the most cost-effective way to um, mitigate climate change is not to generate kilowatts using coal or other carbon-based fuels in the first place. So that kind of set me on my trajectory in this energy efficiency realm. And for the last 30 years, I've been um, advocating and creating programs to help buildings save energy and um, not use carbon-based fuels. So kind of fast-forwarding um, to Chicago, I got a chance to work on new construction buildings specifically and helping architects and engineers design buildings that were as energy efficient as possible before we even considered, you know, connecting to renewable energy sources. And through the work with Illinois Green and other activities around the city of Chicago um, in 2018, uh, I got a call from the current that the CSO at the time, Chris Wheat, and he was moving into uh, the role as Mayor Emanuel's chief policy officer, and he needed to fill the chief sustainability officer seat. And he called me and asked me if I'd be willing to be considered. And I took that to mean that, okay, I'm on a list of folks that, you know, they're considering. And I, you know, your career coach will tell you if you're always say yes when someone asks you if you're willing to be considered, <laughs> right? Um, I had no idea that I would be the one. Um, and so the process took, you know, probably three or four months. And I didn't hear much beyond um, just like, send me your resume or send me this. And then probably f maybe February or March of 2018, Chris calls me and he says, um, how would you like to talk to the mayor? And again, still didn't know if I was going to be CSO or not. And I said, okay, let's talk to the mayor. So we did. And um, after that discussion, which was really quite um, inspiring, he asked me when I wanted to start. <laughs> and that's how wow. I got the job. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool, you know. Um, and I was very excited about that because, I, again, my platform is build energy efficiency in the buildings first. Uh -huh. And that was my approach to um, the job. What I learned as CSO is there are already lots of things already in flight that need to be addressed. And it was no different in Mayor Emanuel's um, administration. So uh, well, right what away. You, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, there, so when Mayor Emanuel, you know, had, state had the event where he brought folks in to sign the climate the climate justice or climate initiative i can't remember what year that was 2017 i think um there were a lot mm -hmm. of kind of offshoots from that like um there was this continuing desire from cities other cities other than chicago within the metro area for support and how to like what's mm -hmm. the path to a carbon-free city so that was one element um another element is there's a lot of there were a lot of things happening with recycling that needed to be addressed um the tree canopy was another area that needed to be addressed um there was already discussion 
within the city about how to get to 100% uh, clean energy, not only for the city at, in general, but specifically for city-owned buildings. Um, mm -hmm. So the CSO role is very, very broad and didn't have a lot of staff. So uh, yeah, really, because, I was because thinking, that department had been disbanded you know, uh, a number of years right. before, which we'll get and to going, in a second. Which we'll get to in a second. So I got a, I had the pleasure of working with people that had been in the Department of Energy at the time, um, mm -hmm. which is a huge plus because they were able to run projects and manage all of the you know, sustainability, environmental pieces without a CSO. And, you know, I think we're going to talk about this later, but part of the challenge in coming in in June of 2018 and then having Mayor Emanuel announced he's leaving three months later, it, I never got a chance to really get my hands around the, the whole picture of the CSO job. There's also an environmental component. There are a lot of things happening on the southeast side related to pollutants like manganese and other thing, other pollutants in that area that needed attention. And dust is a huge issue as well with trucks and construction dust and asphalt. And all those things need to be regulated. And mm -hmm. the, the CSO job touches on, on all of that. So... Um, uh, when when you say it, it touches on, and by the way, you're in a sense burying the lead because um, you got the job as CSO uh, in the uh, Emanuel administration, uh, which meant you had to move from the suburbs into the city yeah. to to be a resident here. And then three months later, he says, "Oh, by the way, I'm not running for mayor again." Um, that was speaking of disruption. That was a bit of a disruption to your life, wasn't it? It was a huge disruption. Um, we had to sell the house, pack our things um, in a very short time period. Um, yeah, that was a huge disruption. <laughs> so to get to Chicago, three, you know, within three months of the move, learn that the mayor is not running was a huge surprise, and it was a yeah, big surprise to everybody away. in the office. Well, the the CSO job is in the it's. It's required to have a CSO. It's in the city uh, statute. And the other thing um, you said, you, there was so much to absorb uh, in in the position. But as I mentioned, you didn't really have a department. Um, one of the uh, things that uh, uh, and I and I found the quote, uh, the article that had it in there. We were talking the other day when we were setting uh, this up uh, that some uh, alder critters refer to uh, the CSO, the uh, chief sustainability officer, uh, they refer to, to the department as cubicle of the environment, which is, um, <laughs> a, and, and because there's, there's been, yes, one person. So we went from a staff, we went from an actual department under Suzanne yeah. uh, to the one person throughout Rahm's administration. And unfortunately that has continued into the Lightfoot administration, even though, and I've got the link here from her own page. When she was running, she promised that she would reinstate the Department of the Environment. Well, two years down the road, that has not happened. Um, Nine-point environmental policy. Yep. Um, yeah. And uh, it's a financial issue. That's, you know, it's, we want to talk about that. Yeah, the we money do. That, 
the money, this is my understanding and Suzanne, correct me if I'm wrong, but the money that created the department of environment came from a lawsuit um, in 2000, whenever the, um, the heat wave happened. Oh, 1999. That was a great bank account, but it was okay. not what started. It was not what started. So the, when Mayor Emanuel took office, my understanding was the bank account was pretty much gone. No. Well, yeah, no. well, let's let's. This okay, is the time we. This is the time yeah. we go to uh, Suzanne. Uh, well, and- it was a great bank account, and I will tell you about that. But but actually, when you do, hi everybody. <laughs> and and and, and and may I? Uh, how are your yeah, eyes? You, okay. And if you get a chance, might, just they might, cry, they might cry later if we okay. talk about stuff that could cause me to cry. Which there's plenty of things that can't. But um, I'm going to ask you to so, tilt down a little bit too, if you can do that. Is that possible with that camera? There we go. Yay! You want to see my cleavage? Is that what it is? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, uh, but then you settle back into your chair there. So uh, anyway, right. so- fine. Here, here, here. <laughs> There. All right, there we go. I'm trying to be as professional I as possible. To my green books. Look at my green books back here. There's so many great books. Wildflowers and um, all stuff about climate and the Green New Deal, Last Child in the Woods. There you go. I just want to make plugs. Uh, so. so tell us about that, the Department of the Environment and uh, and your role in it. Okay. Um, hmm. So what, how how do you want me to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, long long ago in a galaxy far far away. Galaxy, All right, far, let far, me ask well, you a question about what happened just after you left. Do you know why uh, the department was disbanded? Why why was it cut out? Yeah, I, I think that I mean there are different perspectives about how to run environmental action and policy at a municipal level, um, and and there are many cities that do it with a you know, a singular person who usually has some kind of staff and then coordinates amongst a range of different departments. Um, and so it's really, it's really an organizational structure issue, not as much a money thing. It really isn't because there are certain things happening regardless, like enforcement. And actually one of the biggest revenue sources for a department of environment is enforcement because you have to get, um, you need a big team doing great work on, air quality, water quality, even olfactory things. Soil, soil quality as well you were working on. Well, yeah, that's, 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 of course, that's the toxicity in the soil and what we need to do depending on the kind of development you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the enforcement group is big and wide and does a lot of work if that's their priority, right? And our priority was not let's bust people and put them out of business It was more, let's help people comply (laughs) so we can keep these businesses, right? So we can keep people employed. If they can't comply, if they're not doing good business, they should go. But let's see what we can do first uh, to clean them up and make them a good citizen of the city, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the enforcement division, um, we submitted a lot of permits. People bought had had to pay for permits all the time. I, I'm not kidding you. I probably signed things. I probably signed 30, anywhere from 30 to 75 things a day for the enforcement division. Wow. Where there were permits, there were certificates, they were uh, sometimes lawsuits, they were administrative hearings. I mean, I was just constantly signing stuff for that group. It was really one of the busiest groups. Um, and 
for all of that, there are fees, there are fines, there are certificate costs, etc. And oftentimes that would go into what's called general revenue, which is just the city's budget and you never see it. But I'm trying to remember what the numbers were, but I mean, it was several million dollars easy. Mm -hmm. And if, if you tie those types of things to operational aspects, you can actually make a lot happen that way. And again, it's not slamming people as much as when somebody sets up a, a, um, a new factory, we, I know there was a two part process. There was first the process of making sure all the equipment they use follows all the environmental guidelines, right? And there was some kind of fee for that. And then there was the operational fee that would have to certificate of operation. I remember that one before they started business, before they turned it on. And then there's an annual, um, an annual uh, visit inspection and recertification. Now that probably sounds like we're gouging them. We weren't, it wasn't a crap load of money for the size of these, of these organizations, but um, it, it, it brought in revenue. And if you, if you tie your budget to operations in that way, you can start seeing how it can, you know, a lot of things can drive itself. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's what was lost in this process. So actually the beginning of the Department of Environment came from shoreline restoration with the Army Corps of Engineers. Henry Henderson was in the law department and he was helping oversee and push the, the Congress to bring money to the Army Corps to rebuild our shoreline, which is now far, far, far underway, but it's taken many, many years. There was money from that, and then there was money from enforcement, and that's where the budget started to form. Okay. Uh, this okay. is a, a, a good introduction. Uh, we need to take a, a short break, um, and uh, we will return uh, with some specific issues that I, I want to get into. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki this morning. We're talking Chicago environmental smack with the experts, and uh, we will be right back. Whether you're a farmer or a backyard gardener, assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with Spectrum Soil Inoculum from Tinyo Biologicals. The beneficial microorganisms in Spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants. Spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus, building richer, healthier soil. Spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is OMRI listed. Get Spectrum at blazing-star.com. You can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting. And you don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. Fozzie, what is this? Oh, Kermit, it's my new ball. I'm talking about this mess. Oh, that was the packaging. You know, Fozzie, when you buy things that are overpackaged, you create more garbage and hurt the environment. I do? Try to choose products that aren't overpackaged and recycle whenever you can. You mean like this banana peel? You can recycle a banana peel? Sure. Yeah! To find out how you can help, write to Make a Difference, National Wildlife Federation, Washington, D.C., 20036. Isn't comedy wonderful? <laughs> it sure I is. Love that. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love Kermit. I, I the Muppets are the best, and I've been tracking down all these old. I mean that that uh, 
Peggy looked up that address, and it, it's no longer valid. Uh, but finding these old PSAs out there, which still mm-hmm. resonate, and uh, it, yeah. it actually takes us to a subject that I want to get into, which is recycling. If oh, you're going to, <laughs> well, you know, and if uh, full disclosure, I was president of the Chicago Recycling Coalition for uh, six years, so I've had a little bit of. Um, uh, involvement in this issue over the years. And, um, you know, the question I, 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 oh, let me ask you, Sandra, how much did CSO, uh, work with, uh, streets and sand and get involved when you, when you were in that office, uh, in the recycling program? Um, well, CSO, part of the first part of my job was just getting to know all the di- different department areas. So I, did meet with Streets and Sanitation to talk about recycling and got a chance to learn about their education initiatives. Um, and then I think the, what is it? The better government association. association. Oh, that, oh, that happened while you on your watch, right? Yeah, it did. We, it we've, did. We, we've had uh, Madison Hopkin Madison. Uh, on, on our show. She wrote a couple of articles. One was about uh, the double dipping uh, by uh, uh, waste management, um, and who just, uh, by the way, I believe just the other day, uh, Lakeshore started picking up the recycling uh, in Chicago. So waste management management was not brought back. Um, and so she did that first article about why are so many uh, blue cards being tagged as contaminated, uh, and where is that going? And then she did the second investigation a year later, um, and and it, when you were talking earlier, Suzanne, about um, uh, fines and fees, um, she was talking about how none, virtually none of the high rises in the city of Chicago are ever fined for not having recycling systems. And there are plenty out there. Um, uh, why did that happen, Suzanne? Why did what ha- what part? What part? Well, okay, I'm going to work my way <laughs> back. Why is it that the city could never find it in its heart to fine the people who are violating the? Because, that yeah, part? it has nothing about having it in their heart. Again, that's an enforcement and operational issue. So, it, when you pass an ordinance, so here's the problem: if you and you were saying this last night, I think in an email, why can't policies and ordinances? Is it too difficult? Whatever. It is a very meticulous process to build an ordinance and, and you want everybody to get behind it. Otherwise it's just going to get, people are going to talk smack about it and they're not going to work with you on it. And so every ordinance we tried to work on, we tried to bring in all the people who'd be for it, against it, what have you, and come up with something that people not only could live with, whether they liked it or not, but that was operational. Because if you pass an ordinance and you haven't figured out the next step is regulations, you haven't figured out how to enforce that ordinance, how to operationalize that mm-hmm. ordinance. It's waste. So we have, you know, the plastic bag. We have all these different kinds of things, which are really or how important. to budget for it. Right. Mm-hmm. If you if you haven't figured out the operations, you haven't figured out how to make an ordinance work. And so, in that case, you know, with streets and sand, how many people would it take to actually inspect multi-unit buildings across the city of Chicago? I don't know the answer to that but it certainly wasn't at the top of their priority when people are saying, can you pick up my branches in the back or what have you, right? And, and so the, the way Streets and Sand is designed, it's very much a current, it's a, it's a reactive. It's like, we wanna serve our people. We wanna serve our aldermen. 
So if somebody gets an aldermanic call and says, we'll get to this later, cut down my tree or <laughs> what have you, um, you know, that it's, it's streets and sand makes the city hum, right? We, you know, garbage and towing and whatever and plowing, but um, so much of it is reactive. And so a proactive approach to that would have been to really figure out how do you merge and look at the inspection process that Streets and Sand has and maybe other departments together and figure out how you can make sure those inspections happen. And so one of the challenges is that, you know, you get, if I recall a long time ago, it was a teeny little ticket. And so property managers were like, you know, I'll take my chances. They'll never get here. Most times they didn't. So they didn't do it because recycling in this city and Sandra and everybody else would love to hear my, my, my theory on this is it's expensive because, yeah. because it's cheaper to throw things away in this region than to recycle because our landfill costs are so low. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't remember what they are now, but back in the day, it was like $40 a cubic something. I don't remember what the number cubic was. yard. Maybe. And, yeah. but, but in San Francisco is 160 in New Jersey. It was 180. So they mm-hmm. can afford to compost and recycle because the money they save from not dumping in a landfill, they can use a margin of that to do the recycling, to do the composting infrastructure, those kinds of things. So that's always been a big problem. I'm getting, I'm getting, <laughs> um, never mind. I'm getting notes from somebody. You're allowed just, to cheat. It's okay. Yeah, no, no. Just, just make sure like everybody's excited about this, right? We're, we're all passionate about these issues. So, so anyway, I mean, that's the problem is if we don't figure out how to operationalize an ordinance and you don't work with the people whom you will be enforcing against, right. Uh, or enforcing with, or the people you're protecting, then you don't really know how it works, and then the system doesn't work. All right. Well, um, let me ask you a question about that. Uh, you talked about inspectors and that sort of thing. What, what kind of responsibility did the Department of the Environment have um, in the recycling realm, uh, both both for the high-rises and for uh, residential buildings? We did not have any enforcement responsibility. That's all streets um, and sand, right? It's all streets and sand. And so our, yeah. our job was to um, – what DOE did often, Department of Environment, is we were like kind of a, um, it started out, it would start out as like a think tank. You'd bring the departments together. You'd think about what are the challenges. Mm-hmm. We'd go out and do research. We'd, we'd bring people together. We'd figure out what, what are the best solutions? What are the funding yeah. sources? What are all those things? Work with the operational departments and say, okay, looks like, what if we, what if we looked at it this way or that way? How could we, how could we pass solid legislation um, that could operationalize what we want to see in our city and who are all the players and what are the costs and operations. So with soil and rubble ordinance, our water ordinance, our energy ordinance, all those became, I think, really cool partnerships with departments and players and construction people and all those kinds of things to make it functional. And I feel like they shrunk all, they took all of those roles and responsibilities from the DOE and put them right into the CSO spot. Um, and yeah. there's no way one, one office, one person could do all of that. And I just want to touch on the recycling piece because that um, article from BGA was great. Uh, and it highlighted a lot of 
of of issues with the recycling structure as it existed and currently exists today. And the aldermen, there are a couple aldermen that got um, that caught that caught their attention, and they called the CSO, they called me, they called Streets and Sanitation, and we sat down to just chat about how um, the work, how to, how it was currently operationalized. And what I learned is it is a waste management for the city to actually like do waste management itself is, is very expensive because the um, contracts with the, you know, streets and sand and the workers at the city require that each truck have two people waste management mm-hmm. and other, other waste companies can do the work with one person in the truck. And that was a huge cost differential. We actually crunched the numbers because there was a discussion about, well, what if we, what if the city just does all of that? And it's a, it, there was no, no momentum within the office to actually like talk about paying for that. That's Um, right. Yeah. yeah. And I think, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, I think that, when we want to talk about change, um, if we don't talk about unions as part of change, you're not talking about change. Um, and, Mm. and this isn't a union slamming moment, you know, unions have a important place, but oftentimes the unions are stuck in the old days. And what happens in this instance, as you Sanders example, one person to two people, oftentimes Stevens and has three people. And the big challenge is the motor truck, motor truck driver position, and that's a person who drives the truck and sits in the truck the entire time, whether they're pruning a tree or picking up recycling or any of that. Um, so, you know, I think that is a huge cost. It's the personnel cost doing that. And then it's, it's outfitting a truck like in the suburbs or private companies who oftentimes have a lifter of its own. The person drives, they use the lifter to pick up the dumpster, dump it in and go. So that's all, it's like a dead in the water kind of thing because you're cutting positions if you do it in a more efficient manner that many 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 cities and businesses do already. So it's right, a- and there's you're cutting labor, and then you also have to look at your fleet. And at the time, there weren't mm-hmm. enough um, trucks, waste trucks, to actually like serve the entire city because we've outsourced it to other waste haulers. So it's a it's- lot of cost issues. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, this has to be reworked from the ground up if we're going to uh, increase the uh, yeah. percentage, uh, the, the the horrible recycling rate that we have in the city of Chicago. Um, how, well, there's what? two pieces to that. Yeah. You know, um, one is that the, the, the waste is actually a commodity. Right. And yeah. I don't know about the new ordinance. And by the way, I will always plug Chris Sove at Department of Streets and Sanitation. He is a lone wolf of leadership and wants to do the right thing and, and is quite, quite helpful and collaborative. You know, but he gets, you know, the politics and everything kind of get involved in the economics and everything get involved. And, and that's really hard um, to push up against around, et cetera. Um, but the reality and, and, is- and folks should know uh, Chris Ove has been there. He's the, the, the head of basically the recycling end of things. And he's been there now through three administrations. Uh, yeah. He was there when Daly was there and through Rahm and, uh, and Lori Lightfoot. Um, and 
Yeah, I'm glad you're explaining this because uh, I, I, there are some people, and I'm uh, listed among them, wondering, well, if if you're if you're working so hard, why are you getting nowhere? Why why have yeah. we not gotten anywhere with this? Well, why here's is the, the news always the same? Right, and it, how how often have you had Chris on your show? Uh, I have not had him on right. in a long time. How often do you see him in the media? Very little, because yeah. right. You don't put somebody at that level into the media because the, the message has to be controlled. I mean, that's politics. That's government, of course. But there's a lot of knowledge in that department and many others about what can and should be done. But really yeah. it is, um, it's do you have the cojones? Um, I used to say conejos and people told me that was rabbits. Um, do you have the cojones? <laughs> I really was. I said conejos for like two years and people are finally like, Suzanne, do you know you're saying rabbits? <laughs> Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, and they're listening. <laughs> um, but do you have the cojones to take on big issues like labor um, and the way that we're all used to doing things, including serving your aldermen operationally? Um, if if you take that that power, that resource out, and make it more operational as opposed to political, you get a lot more efficiencies. But then people lose some of their because they don't have their own team who can go out and do things based on people's requests. Right. And the other data point I want to share is Chris is an amazing fount of information. And at the time I was in the office, it was around the time China decided they weren't going to take our plastic anymore. And Chris and I talked about where's the market? Where do we send all this plastic? And I don't know if it's changed, but at the time, there was no place to take it. And on top of that, you have um, companies that create, you know, they use, they create plastic every day out of virgin materials, like detergent companies, for example, laundry mm-hmm. detergent. And it's actually cheaper for them to buy virgin material than it is for them to buy re- material from recycled plastic to make their products. And until that price dif- that shifts, we, we, need, we need demand for those recycled plastic products and we don't have it in this country. And on top of that, we don't have a lot of places in the country that can actually recycle the plastic and turn it into usable materials. And those are the types of conversations that Chris and I would have uh, at least on a weekly basis. So he's another example of folks within the city that have the knowledge and know what needs to happen. They, They don't have a Department of Environment behind them as a collaborative, connective tissue to help make change within the city. Okay. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down on just this topic, but let me end it by asking each of you, if you were going to make a change in recycling tomorrow, just to start, just to get us on the right path, what would it be? I I have two, so it's just not fair. You have two? Um, I have two. Go. That are Go for it. All right. okay. So remember the words reduce, reuse, recycle? Yeah. Reduce yep. is about not not um, not providing that waste in the first place. So there are a lot of cities that have um, ordinances now about not allowing packaging, not allowing, you know, certain things. People in some places take their products and they take off the wrapping at the store and then bring it home. They don't have that waste. And then it's up to the commercial enterprise to do something with that waste. Um, there, there, there's, there was a so large... Right, right. 
So you push it to the manufacturer and you make them do it. Will it make the price go up? Probably a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look at the price of waste and both environmentally and economically, it's worth it. Um, So that's one thing. It's just a whole zero waste aspect of this. And there's a great, really well thought out program that had Streets and Sand and everybody involved that we were pushing towards and that died. The other thing is waste Mm -hmm. franchising. I can't say enough about that because that's where competition really comes in and where efficiencies really come in. Indianapolis has it. What what is, excuse me, Suzanne, what is waste franchising? Waste franchising is, it it is a competitive, um, privately run um, waste program. um, And and Streets and Sand could be part of it. There's ways to do it. Where instead of having companies bidding for that multi-unit and another company for that multi-unit, they get a zone. And that's kind of what's been going on with Blue Cart, um, et cetera, but it's for everything. It's for commercial, it's for industrial, residential, everything. And so what so the whole is, neighborhood or the whole ward. Exactly. I think our I think our plan was like six to nine areas. So it was more than just a ward. And that company would do everything. They would pick up again, multi unit, single, commercial, industrial, everything. Um, and we were pushing for that and we got slaughtered by the waste companies. Um, yeah, I remember because, that. Right. I mean, it was, it was literally the mayor said to me, this is just too bloody. You just have to give up. Um, and what that does think about it, you know, you have one truck going down our alleys, right? You have, and you have fair pricing, across the area too. And right. Massive. And what you're saying is right now you can have two two uh, large buildings next to each other and one has one service and one has another service mm-hmm. and there's and then the the one goes to this building and then is going seven blocks over and you know sixteen blocks yep. that way yep. too. And charging to get, a different rate. You know charging, and, and that's the key thing is talk about environmental justice. The research we did Low-income communities were oftentimes paying three or four times the cost, three or four times the cost for their dumpsters to be picked up in businesses or whatever than they were in higher-income communities. It just made my made me shiver because it's so disgusting. Um, so you so, would I mean, you you would bring back fran- or attempt to bring franchising into the equation? Uh, absolutely. And uh, Sandra, what about you? Yeah, I think it's related to what Suzanne's saying. I would make it easier for people to recycle. Period. Um, because Kind of education is really important and making it easy for folks to do that. Um, have delivering bins on time, having, you know, neighborhood folks involved in the recycling process, making them a part of it when I feel like that's not necessarily true in every community. Well, and that, we really but there, do have to, to make them part of that. To be fair, there, there have been block captains and this was uh, an effort that uh, that I don't know if it still continues, but it certainly was a big part of it back in the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know if it's. I don't. I'm not sure yeah, that exists right now. Yeah, I get a few emails from recycling block cla- captains still. Okay, and you know, they were all. In, I hate that. I'm not going to use that word. Um, so they all had kind of an infrastructure in place so they could work a certain amount of blocks and let everybody know today's your day for recycling. We'd had signs that you could put up in your front yard, etc. But, but but really to go, it's not even just that. It's like, why would people recycle, especially if they think it's getting dumped in the garbage? Well, well that's you know, the and, thing. And that's, yeah, it, yeah. You have to tell the story about why it's important and re-engage folks in just like those old commercials with, you know, 
give a hoot, don't pollute. We have to reignite folks and help them get passionate about recycling and help them understand how it helps our life, improves our lives. We have to have that conversation. And I don't think we're having that on a, on a block by block neighborhood level. And we need to, if we're going to make it. And I honestly, I think single sort when we, when folks had to sort their own recycling, I think that made a difference. And when we started telling people that you could just throw it all in one bin and we'll, we'll sort it for you at the plant that I think kind of dis disconnects people from the importance of recycling. You know, we had uh, Marta Keene from Will County on the show a few weeks ago, and I asked her, I said, do you think single stream recycling, that is, the, you know, where you throw the paper and the, and, the, and the metal and the glass all in one cart, I said, is that the best thing that ever happened to recycling or the worst thing that ever happened to recycling? And I think the jury's out. Nobody really knows because yeah. now, we're, now we're looking at glass as a contaminant, and it's one of the most eminently recyclable products out there. Um, right. And uh, have you guys ever gone to one of the MRFs municipal recycling and bubble gum facility? So when blue cart first started, when blue bag, blue bag, don't even get me started, but blue cart. (laughs) I'm um, glad (laughs) you feel that way. Um, It was incredible technology. I mean, and it was employing people in these centers and their magnets. And you could see how all the different types of materials went into separate areas and got organized, et cetera. And of course there was a market then. Um, but I, I agree with Sandra. It's, 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 it's education and engagement. Um, it's also the massive lack of trust in the government that they're going to actually do something with it. There's so much cynicism. Yeah. I have a hard time. I recycle every but, day. But, but I'm going to stop you there, Suzanne. I, I would argue that the city of Chicago engendered that cynicism by having – By blue bag. Absolutely. Because people oh, – Blue agree. bag was a terrible failure, and what it taught the people of Chicago is that the system doesn't work, and they still believe that. Right. But people who I are agree. engaged also know that the blue cart stuff, a lot of that was getting dumped. And so – you know, and, and I don't know the state now, but I do know when I put my stuff out in the blue card, I, I say to myself, there's a little part in my heart going, God, I hope it goes somewhere. Um, <laughs> yes. You know? oh. Oh, that's, I feel the same way. Oh, yeah. man. It's true. It's true. It's true. Um, well, and yeah. I, I'm going to agree with you, Sandra. Education, education, education. Mm-hmm. We have done so little in that regard. And now things have gotten uh, much more complicated. Yeah. We have so many different materials. People throw plastic toys in there. They throw CDs in. Yeah. They throw everything. You know, that the, whole I, the whole idea of yeah. wish, wishful recycling, um, I, I don't. I don't like putting it on the backs of the consumer because I don't think the consumer has been given a chance to do it right. On the other right. hand, the consumer needs to be educated. Uh, and so yeah. how, how do we make and that not happen? just once? That's the thing. Not just once. It's an it's ongoing a continuous process. process. All right. Yes. And, and one more thing before we go, we got a message from Carter O'Brien, uh, who, you Hi, know, Carter. Uh, from, Hi, the, Carter. <laughs> from, from the field museum and Chicago recycling coalition. He says it is completely illogical to have the Department of Streets and Sand in charge of inspecting buildings they do not service. In my opinion, the Department of Buildings should be charged with enforcing recycling in those five-plus unit buildings. Just make it one more box they check when they are already there for a safety-related inspection, like elevators, fire escapes, and so on. That I mean, makes Just like gas stations, just like restaurants, just like there is a completely bifurcated enforcement process that could be made a lot more efficient yeah and i and i'm telling you uh, i i 
I know it's complex, and as we just discussed for 20 minutes, it is a very complex issue. I've always thought also that it, it, it boils down to political will and that the person at the top has to say, make this happen. Please, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, like, it's, it's got to be easy for the actual person doing the recycling as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. It does. And, and, and it may sound simplistic, but, you know, it's, it's OK. It's, it's and we're going to be breaking here in just a second. But it's like that. I sent you an article the other day um, about the collisions, uh, bird collisions Birds. at McCormick Place. OK, and the study comes out and this is not a fly by night thing. No pun intended. Um <laughs> wow, I can't believe I said that. Uh, and um, but these birds. As we're migrating to a new topic, yes. Uh, thank you very uh, much. Uh, All right. Um, but we could reduce bird mortality by sixty percent just by turning off yeah. half half the lights at McCormick Place. And this is a study uh, that uh, uh, Doug Stotts, who's been on our program, he's mm-hmm. from the Field Museum, was was part of this. So these are these are these are experts who are deciding this. So if I'm the mayor, I I look at that and I say, make that happen tomorrow. Why does that not happen tomorrow? What is it about our system that it can't work? That way. This has been going on for 20 years. We started the lights out program in, I oh God, I don't even know when that was, a long time ago. And it, it mm-hmm. and you can even do it in a good faith effort with buildings. What we learned is Hancock, all these places, by turning off their ornamental lighting during these critical times, they save energy. They yeah, save since energy. 19, since 1999, actually. Yeah. So, and, and so it's, sim- it's the cleaning people. Um, that are working there at nights and the lights are on, put the blinds down. I mean, there's a lot of simple things that can be done, but there's no communication about it. Um, you know, and, and so well, I, I'm of- looking from a policy standpoint here, you know, and right. a person like a CSO or a, a commissioner of the Department of the Environment. Can't you grab the mayor and say, can you please make this happen? It will make a big difference. Well, the question is making what happen, right? So you have to, again, it's a bunch of pieces. So the Building Owners and Managers Association, who have all the big buildings downtown, they're a key partner. You have to have them involved. Um, it can be done, but it, it has to be regular communication and acknowledgement of people who are doing the work. And then they say, yeah, I want to I look for this. Yep. And yeah. you may have right. to incentivize them, too. Right? Yep. What was that saying? Right. I said it's education. and You may have to incentivize the building owners through yeah. something like retrofit Chicago or some other existing lever that could be a communication vehicle to get owners to turn their lights off. Uh, yeah. Maybe but, but, the, but, but again, it's, it's you, those wheels have to start rolling so that, the, I mean, every day that you don't do this, it's, it's yeah. hundreds or yeah. thousands of birds that die. All yeah. right. The study comes out. It's, it's in block club. It's in the tribune. Bunch of people talk about it. How does it then get implemented? Where right? And and, and so what, think, who, who, whose job is it to take that stick. ball and run with it? Yeah, there's the carrot and stick, right? There's the incentive, and then there's the stick. Chicago bird collision monitors. What if they were out and they charged a certain amount for every bird they found next to a building? You know what yeah. I mean? Like there's there's all kinds of ways this could be done, um, but it's mm-hmm. it's not undoable. And one more thing before. Uh, we break here that I, I think is uh, pretty important uh, from Audrey Fisher, our friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know Audrey Fisher. Um, 
And she says, Suzanne and Sandra, please include the issue of light pollution in Chicago. This has to do with what we're talking about now. Absolutely. Uh, when talking about the state of the environment in Chicago, we had a phenomenal opportunity to dramatically reduce light pollution in Chicago. Yet instead, Chicago installed horrific blue, rich, bright white lights. And I see on my local um, uh, the, the uh, online group for this part of the city, Logan Square, people are already, always uh, writing, why is that light so bright? It's shining through my bedroom window. Um, yeah. uh, instead, mm-hmm. Chicago uh, installed those lights that are harmful to the environment, ecosystems, and humans. As one of the first graduates of the Chicago Conservation Corps, um, there we go, I would be more than happy and willing to teach C3 about light pollution and how to reverse it in Chicago and would greatly appreciate a chance to talk with the right people to get starlight back over Chicago. Um, Let's make it happen, girlfriend. Yeah. And she, there's this group called the Adler Planetarium. I don't know if you've heard of them, but <laughs> we've got like one of the most brilliant research groups there who know this stuff. Like, collaborate well (laughs) and and and, and when we get back to bureaucracy here if you want to talk deep state deep state is you know uh, the right wing likes to talk about deep state and just being nefarious and so forth i'll tell you what deep state is it's bureaucrats in a place like the city of chicago that don't change over time um a couple years ago i went out with alderman yeah what was that three years ago we were out uh, two. I thought it was two years ago, but uh, Scott Wagusback, uh, we yep. went out there with Audrey and some other folks, and we tested the lights mm-hmm. that they new lights they had put in they Humboldt were, Park. They were uh, this was in Humboldt Park. The and they, LED lights. Uh, yeah, the new yep. ones, and they were way up on the blue spectrum, which is too yep. blue. They're at three thousand K, and we had a, a guy from Canada, a company who had a twenty two hundred K light. Warm, Full nice spectrum light, beautiful glow. Amazing. We could not get the city. The Scott could not get the city's attention uh, at all. So what's they, the question? What, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just going to say they. They basically they were saying that I think the purchase is done. We're we're installing these yeah. uh, contracts to, in whether they're the right temperature or not. You know, they went not. off the old study. But that was right, it. and it's also. I mean, as Sandra knows, as an engineer. Right, which I didn't know you were. That's super cool. Um, you know, there are a lot of engineers who 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 are most concerned about redundancy. Is it going to do the same amount of work as the other one? And the question is violence. I mean, really, it's about safety. Period. And so, are you sure it's going to cover the same amount of area? If it's not as bright, will it be not as good? There's a lot of education. And but the study, yeah, there is. And part of the studies show that if you have a softer glow, it's easier for people to adapt, you know, to, to the light. So you actually see better with a lower yeah. Uh, Kelvin. Yeah, color was a huge thing in and the lower Kelvin. You could yes. see more. So anyway. Yeah, and the uh, other piece to kind of the one for one thing is what I'm observing is they're putting the LED lights in the existing fixtures. And I'm wondering if anybody ever had the discussion do we need fewer fixtures with better more effective lighting well i don't think that's happening which is chicago's overlit period there's too many lighting fixtures on the street anyway now they're just putting in brighter light in the same number of fixtures it doesn't really make sense because we're terrified like la and others they they did the research about if you put in an infrastructure that looks like xyz abc you're gonna city of city save a ton of money by like year six, you'll have paid it all back. 
right, in energy costs right. alone. So again, there's an economics to this that if it's thought through, and again, then there's the political will, because oftentimes there's a cost up front, that it, it just makes sense environmentally and economically. Okay. Right. Uh, and if you fly over LA or DC, you'll see that there's a huge reduction in light in the, the light pollution, but the streets mm-hmm. are lit. They feel the same as they did before they did the retrofit. And we did not learn that lesson in Chicago. All right, we need to take this uh, break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk environmental justice and trees. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, Suzanne Malik McKenna, Sandra Henry are with us, and we hope you stick around for yet one more half hour of discussion. best thing about my job is the excitement of uh, waking up every morning just wondering what the challenges are going to be that day. So how do you like my office? We lead with safety. It's the first thing that I think about when I wake up. It's the last thing I think about when I go to bed. We've got a number of employees in the office, myself included, who've been, been around for 10, 15 plus years. So people enjoy working for the company. And staff retention is a thing that we're very, very keen on. It's no secret that the world of arboriculture is a male-dominated industry, but there is a fearless group of women out there that are determined to change that, and I'm really proud to be one of those women. At my office, I feel like you could take just about anyone put a crew together and send them out to a job and have it be successful. And that has to do with trusting the people you work with, feeling safe around them, and knowing their strengths and weaknesses. One of the proudest moments working uh, with Barlet for me was being the first to do training in a Spanish class. Barlet is all about promoting from within. We really want to focus on our people and make sure that they're trained, make sure that they understand their role and you slowly grow through your experience and then you improve and, and move on to different roles within the company. There's always new positions, even at a base level, myself included. I started off as a climber and I've worked my way through to being local manager in the office. Bartlett has been really great about recognizing any kind of roadblocks for different genders, different races, people of different nationalities, and just kind of taking a bulldozer to all of those roadblocks. Every tree needs a champion. 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 champion. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music porches. Okay, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. You got everything uh, taken care of there, Suzanne? I was looking for my favorite tree book. Oh, which is your, what is your favorite tree book? It's it's the book that turned me on to all of this, which is, I mean, it's not very exciting, but it's Michael Durr's. Um, ah. Um, you know, the Manual of Woody and Ornamental yep. Plants, right? I, and it was 
my first class in horticulture that just turned me on to trees. I, I have a beat up copy of that book around here someplace. Copy, yeah, yeah. The other it's room. The well, the you know, I was going to go with the other one, but let's start there since, you know, we're talking every tree needs a champion and the trees in Chicago. Good uh, segue. You got some. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, why not? The Scott tree- Jameson. Yeah. Scott Jameson with Bartlett. Talk about champion. Uh, Eric Grosnickel, Bartlett. I know, I know Skeet's watching this morning. Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, thank you to them for sponsoring this show. Um, I've worked with them forever. Scott Jameson, along with Larry Hall years ago, helped start Tree Keepers in 1991. 30 years this year. I, would, um, and we I all, remember we going to the... Younger, of course. I remember um, going, so going to the... Tw- yeah, they are... Um, Only the trees have aged. Yeah, I was. I was. I was going to say I was at the 25th anniversary uh, of uh, of a tree. And now we're at 31. Yikes! Okay. No, we're at 30. We're at 30, 30 this year. Oh, this is okay. 30. This year at 30. Oh. And and uh, and I know you're you're what tree, are you tree keeper number one? I am. I started it in 1991. Yeah. yeah, I am a tree keeper wow. number 417. So. Um, and there are uh, thousands now, so there are thousands, yeah. Which is really so great. such a cool thing. And this week, uh, you know, let's look at something positive that happened uh, in the environment in the city of Chicago this week, which is uh, the uh, the finance committee created a 13 member urban forestry advisory board. Uh, yeah. Now it doesn't; it's only an advisory board, so it doesn't have a lot of power. Uh, but it's it's still very, very important. Why would you say that is, Suzanne? Well, it's, I mean, again, it's everything we've just been talking about, education and engagement, right? If you have aldermen and city commissioners uh, working together with experts in the field, um, you know, we've got open lands in the Morton Arboretum right here, right? Botanic Garden. Arboretum, mm-hmm. you know, just did their 2020 census. We've got so much data about trees, about what they do for our environment and our mental health and violence. There's so much research now. And um, we need people having that conversation regularly. And if you have it with aldermen and city council, hopefully they'll, the the more they learn, the more they'll advocate for the right practices for trees. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Oh, I was just going to say part of the problem uh, that we've had in the past is that uh, there hasn't been this understanding of how important trees are. And with alders, um, their responsibility are part of it has been what trees get cut down. And it's not been so much about uh, about putting new trees in, planting new trees, but the power to remove trees. And we've had some egregious examples them very strangely. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. One of the things that the uh, they do is they limb them up like crazy, in which is not great for a tree. But it, I understand why they do. They always say it's a secure, a safety thing, uh, security. They're called broccoli or they, spears. Yeah. Or Rock- they cut down the tree because they think it's the residents think it's going to break their plumbing. That's right. another myth. Oh yeah, that's right. We talked about that uh, the other day, Sandra. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that whole idea. So go for water. So your pipes are already broken, people. Um, but I, I think it's just important but, to understand. Thirty years ago, when we started tree keepers, we still had the same problem, right? People don't understand that trees are part of our urban infrastructure. There are they as important as a fire hydrant? Maybe not. Uh, a streetlight? Maybe not. But do they make quality of life? In I, I, I'm, I'm going to disagree Definitely. with you totally, Suzanne. Sorry. 
uh, they are at least as important as those things. I mean that, and that's the problem. I'm, I'm seeing they're living things; they're alive. Yeah, but I, you know, and, and until we recognize that and understand their in, in infrastructure, okay, it's like trying to get re- Republicans to understand that infrastructure infrastructure is more than just roads. Trees are infrastructure in a right. city. So before yeah. you guys keep slamming me over that comment, which I can hear Scott Jameson and everybody going. What are you saying? <laughs> I'm saying in this in the public's perspective, you know, they're not going to say tree versus light or tree versus water or something like that. So it's it's incumbent upon all of us to demonstrate how important that is in the infrastructure. And if you look at Emerald Ash Borer and, and communities that have lost everything, you know, yes. from their energy costs to their quality of life. I mean, it's just it's significant. Yeah. And that's a great point, Suzanne. Trees shade homes reduces the need to run their air conditioning, but we don't we don't make those connections with folks. Right, that's yeah. really important to talk yeah. about that. There is an energy benefit, and in addition, I hope we're going to talk about the decarbonization of buildings later on. Oh yeah, but in, in the scheme of things, like the big picture, we have to if we're going to be successful or at adapting to climate change and potentially mitigating it, we have to decarbonize decarbonizer buildings and we also have to plant lots of green stuff including trees if we're going to really be successful at this and it's going to take all of those pieces yeah go ahead well excuse me i was going to say and that ties into the other thing we were talking in this half hour the social justice and equity issues but you know where are those planted i think yeah exactly where those trees but so while we you've mentioned the uh the decarbonization working group the building decarbonization working group. Tell us a little bit about that, Sandra. How did that come about? And you're you're part of that uh, uh, that group. I am. It's pretty exciting. I'm facilitating the new construction subgroup of the working group. Um, but you know, we've got this ordinance in place to become 100% renewable energy by 2035. Well, how do we do that? First of all, we have to decarbonizer buildings and that means we need to not use carbon producing fuels inside our homes and our multifamily buildings so we're there's a number of levers we have to press to get to that one of them is to work with the city to figure out what that strategy looks like um is it an ordinance is it a code change we could do a zero code there and so we've convened a group of folks um architects, engineers, community members, community organizations to have that discussion. And there's three groups. One is looking at new construction. One is looking at existing construction and the other is looking at training and financing options. There's three subgroups in there and I'm running the new construction group or facilitating it rather. So the, the outcome would be um, at the end of this working group, process is we present a list of recommendations to the city for how we can implement a decarbonization strategy that will get us to 100% clean energy by 2035. That's the outcome. And the success Um, of that outcome will be if the city listens and internalizes it and implements it and institutionalizes it. Yes. Because you're going to come up with amazing recommendations and then the cojones will have to come out um, <laughs> yes. and, um, not the rabbits and, um, and, and, and then it's, how do you implement it? Because it can yes. be done um, and it create jobs and improve quality. and create jobs. You know, I mean, 
as we know, there's there's major um, you know, when you look at the energy maps that CNT and I think then Elevate did for years, you can look at where the worst energy waste is happening. South and west sides where homes haven't been rehabbed, where they haven't yes. been made more energy efficient. And that is where communities are paying a much larger proportion of their monthly budget on energy. It's, it is yes. criminal. Yeah. And, and so it is. Things, like, things like this decarbonization um, program, anything we can do to make our buildings more energy and then how we produce the energy and then how we reduce the need for energy, AKA trees, as an example, yeah. all those things coming together, you all of a sudden have solutions. Go figure. Yes. You know, it can it's be amazing. Done. But, but it can be done. <laughs> but as Suzanne points out, you, you can have this uh, committee uh, decarbonization and you still need uh, the alder people and uh, the mayor political backing. Yeah. You've got to have that. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to sit in zoom meetings and, and, and now maybe even face-to-face meetings. And it's quite another to get, I mean, we talked about that in terms of recycling. How do you get the policy implemented? How does, right. how does well, that the happen? The cool thing about the city of Chicago is we have this amazing civic network of people that are very passionate about this. So once the recommendations are done, the next step is we as citizens need to start calling our aldermen and telling them how wonderful these recommendations are and encouraging them to support it. I mean, we as citizens of the city have to be involved in that process because if if we're not, you're right, it'll just kind of sit there and languish. But that's kind of the next step on the policymaking piece is we have to be supportive of our CSO and the folks within the city that are supporting this policy and we need to get on the phone and call our aldermen and tell them how important this is. Right. But and- during that process, I will just say, you know, if, if you do all this work and then it's incumbent upon community to have to push them, well, you know, that should be happening in the middle of it and helping hold the city accountable to actually think of this towards implementation. And Angela... Yeah. They need our support and love. You're you're talking (laughs) Um, about Angela Tovar, who is the chief sustainability officer, right? Right. You know, there's two people now in the team. Right. Wait a second. We got to give them a ding because it's not just the cubicle of the environment. Now it's two cubicles of environment. Exactly. Exactly. Unless Kira doesn't have an actual desk and she has to pull her chair up to near Angela. (laughs) I don't know. But um, the she does have a desk. Oh, good. Yay. The two desks of environment. Um, So, I mean, I think, again, you've got the right team um, in this decarbonization group. You've got all the knowledge. You know the economics. I mean, frankly, this is not rocket science. We've known for a very long time what we need to do to reduce carbon. And there's lots of pieces, but again, it's, it's institutional willingness and to give some credit to the city uh retrofitting has been on the radar for a number of years in the city of chicago many many years years. on the commercial side especially the residential side we need we need to focus on their on the residential buildings now because 70 percent of our emissions come from build of carbon emissions come from buildings and about 40 percent of that 70 percent is from residential buildings and we need to help the buildings all right more energy efficient. 
uh, one, okay, I want, before we run out of time here, because I really do want to discuss this a little bit, and that is, uh, as Peggy alluded to it just a few minutes ago, uh, environmental justice in the city of Chicago, as we said, it, that involves trees. You know, who gets a tree and who doesn't get a tree, and uh, who gets retrofitted and who doesn't get retrofitted, and who has a new scrap operation put in their neighborhood down the street from a high school, and who does not. And we know who yeah, does not. If you look at uh, Alderman um, Cisha Lopez's ward, it, it's the issue, right, of of the, um, I can't think of the word now, it begins with C, where, where it all comes together. If you put a new factory in, cumulative, thank you. Ding. Um, the cumulative impact. What, what was the word? Yet another cumulative. Cumulative. Um, you know, so General Iron, uh, Hilco, the concrete plant, all those kind of things, what's already there that the communities are having to deal with? The the mat asphalt plant, right? The, these kind of things, we need to be looking at this differently. Um, and, and, and ordinances and regulations don't typically think about it in that way, right? So it's, it's had to come down to the issue of human beings, environmental justice, hello, pay attention to what you're doing to communities that are already in such a, a difficult position as far as the development and industry around them. Yeah. And what's the incentives to the companies doing that work? And what's driving them to make the move? Like what's the zoning? What are the zoning rules that are changing that are requiring, requiring them to move? That was, I'd I like mean, to know more about that. Right. General Iron had constant people complaining from the dust, from the metal, et cetera. Then you had Lincoln Yards, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and it was very expensive land. They make a killing off of selling that land, right? So let's go down to where the land's cheaper, where there's already a lot of industry and a lot of vacant land, a ton of brownfields, and why not just dump there? But, but, but the whole overall aspect, not just industry, but we can connect that to trees and, and flooding, et cetera, and climate is the communities who've been had the most disinvestment over decades are still the communities with the least investment in decades. And that includes trees and it includes um, flooding and water and, and all the range of things that can make quality of life so much better. And by the way, maybe there can be some jobs out of it. Yeah. And why would the zoning rules not protect those communities? I mean, that's it's a question mark. Like we have the zoning laws that are changing that because the land is more expensive where General Iron it's currently located. Um, but what are the zoning laws that protect the folks that are least able to protect themselves? Why is it right. so easy for them to move to the southeast side of Chicago? Yeah. Right? Uh, I, That's the part yeah. where we need more help. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm just going to say something very quickly. We're having some streaming issues, uh, and I don't know why uh, we shouldn't be. Uh, Restream is supposed to be handling all of this, but uh, um, we are recording this, so uh, we will have um, uh, this. Uh, if if I have to, I will just pop up the recorded version of this uh, on uh, YouTube when when we're done with it. So, And I apologize to folks experiencing streaming issues here. It's part of the deal. Um, so um, so my question to you uh, about all this and zoning and so forth is, again, it, it almost always uh, goes back to political will. Why is it that 
the Lightfoot administration can't seem to uh, just make a decision and say, you know, we need to protect these citizens and let's move forward. I don't understand that. Um, well, this is a development issue, right? This is an economic development issue in a lot of regards. And I think it's always been the case that oftentimes the city waits for a big business opportunity to come. And then what can we do to make sure it happens? Because that's investment, right? As opposed to thinking about where do things belong or not belong. And so no matter who comes to you with, you know, hey, I've got millions, but can you give me millions through, um, I don't remember those terms, but uh you know, advance money, et cetera, then, then what happens is you end up serving the developers instead of the community. Yeah. And so yes. what we've seen is all the development that's happened, the residential development right up against, you know, the tanneries on the Chicago River, those all get pushed out over time, but there's never this real discussion about that, that barrier, that buffer that should always be there. Um, and not approach them because it's big because it's big development and big dollars. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Suzanne, one hundred percent. And that the protection that discussion needs to happen for all parts of Chicago, not mm-hmm. it, every part of Chicago should have that discussion about what mm-hmm. are we protecting and how do we do that. Right. Yeah, but it, but it seems to happen, you know, on the south side, the southeast side, and uh, the west side. Uh, especially the southeast side. Uh, we've talked about this on the show. Uh, we've had folks from the Southeast Environmental Task Force and um, NRDC um, talk about uh, the issues down there. And they've gone through so much, um, you know, losing jobs. Uh, the, 100,000 st- in the steel mill industry, 100,000 jobs. And communities remained um, because they believed right. in their areas and they have yet to see a lot of investment that could make those areas, you know, beautiful and productive. And there's a lot of space and a lot of homes um, that could be re-energized. Yeah. So, uh, and, and there's some good stuff going on down there too. Um, I, I, I said, I might uh, talk about the Calumet region. This is something that is near and dear to your heart, Suzanne. Um, and big marsh has been a success story down there uh, and continues to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, we were going to, we were going to, I think one of our questions was, what do we regret? (laughs) You know, the one thing that we, that if we could have done it while we were there, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of all the things that great staff at Department of Environment did, including the Calumet Initiative and partnering with Southeast Environmental Task Force and Field Museum and many others. Um, But uh, we hoped to build the Ford Environmental Center. Um, and it was designed by Jeannie Gang in an international design competition, and it didn't happen. Um, the money needed to be raised, um, the political will, all those kind of things. But now that money has been put into the environmental center at Big Marsh, and I haven't been there yet, but I've seen photos, and it's amazing. Um, so major kudos to the Chicago Park District for taking on all the parcels that had been purchased and are really doing a great job ecological restoration and engagement, et cetera. Um, I'm, I'm so, so happy that that investment continues, but of course, much more needs to be done. Uh, that was your regret. What is, what are you most proud of? Man, I, I, I don't know. I think the team that the, the staff um, that worked at the department of environment are going on doing amazing things from Joyce coffee and climate resiliency. Grace Rink is now running climate, um, resiliency in Denver 
40 million a year that the, the voters passed this referendum and she's doing amazing things. So amazing mm-hmm. staff um, who are off making a huge impact and some things remaining like Green Corps Chicago, um, which is exciting, but um, uh, you know, there's, there's so much to be proud of and happy about. And I just hope they all work continues. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's go to, uh, let's go to you, Sandra. What is it uh, that you're proudest of and, and do you have any regrets? Yeah, I'm most excited and continue to be proud of um, being able to write the ordinance that put the city on the pathway to moving toward 100% renewable energy by 2035. I'm really excited about that. And I'm glad it was an ordinance and not a resolution because now the city actually has to do that work. And I'm still excited to be a part of that. So that's awesome. Um, And I think I'm sad that I didn't get a chance to stay in the office longer. Um, I've, in my opinion, it takes about a year before you really get your feet underneath you and understand anything about any new job. And so I'm, I regret leaving the office when I did, I would have loved to stay longer. Yeah. Well, that, that was a, um, kind of a, a, a rude surprise there. Um, but, um, I, I can understand why, why you would have wanted to stay a little bit because you, you barely got rolling, uh, before you, you had to leave. Yeah. Yeah, and I felt like there was a lot of good stuff. Like Suzanne mentioned, there are still amazing people within the city that want to do awesome things in terms of our sustainability landscape. And um, I'm excited to continue to work with them. And I'm really excited to be able to support the the new CSO, Angela Tovar. Fantastic. More on trees next time, Mike. More on trees. More on trees. You know, we do we do uh, segments on, we do segments on trees all the time. Uh, climate resiliency and climate adaptation and mitigation. Trees are the, like, the huge. We have to plant you're, green stuff everywhere. Everything should yeah. be green. You're just trying to make up for uh, getting uh, the the emails that are going to come at you from your earlier comment, Suzanne. <laughs> No, I don't know. No. <laughs> uh, listen, you guys, this has been fantastic. Um, and I, I apologize to folks um, who, who might had some streaming issues here. But again, this is all recorded here and I can pop it up um, and uh, we will have that up online, uh, all of our conversation. Um, and maybe we'll even uh, get to do it again. Uh, I, I certainly hope so. But thank you for taking. Well, I the- think we need a field trip to um, Big Marsh. Yeah, I'd I'd love to do something down there. So, all right, Uh, uh, Suzanne Malik McKenna and Sandra Henry, much success to you. Thank you so much uh, for being part of the program. And uh, you guys, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Today's a good day, cool. Humidity is going down. Uh, Enjoy it. Yeah. Mike and Peggy, thank you for keeping this going, keeping this place where people can talk and learn about stuff together and celebrate the environment. You guys are rock stars. Um, More sponsors for Mike and Peggy. Oh, now that now that the stream is back, yeah, say that louder. So no, now now well, yeah, now that I'm back, I just got kicked off VMix and had the blue screen for a while. Oh my goodness, you well, and she's back, and uh, and it looks like it looks like the stream is back. So I'm going to assume we're good to go. All right, uh, thank you both. You guys have a great day, and we'll talk very very soon. Uh, It's the Mike Novak show with Peggy Malecki. When we return, if we return, Rick DeMaio. Yeah.
Meteorologist Rick DeMaio, we shall return. You have the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collected Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen, they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. farmer or a backyard gardener assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with spectrum soil inoculum from tinyo biologicals the beneficial microorganisms in spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus building richer healthier soil spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is omri listed get spectrum at blazing-star.com Hey, Rick. Hey. I lost my thumb. Look. <laughs> the, <laughs> the old jokes are I, the I best, think, huh? I think, I think you need some comic relief at this point, huh? Oh, I think so. I, I don't. It was uh, uh, some kind of meltdown, but we're here and let's. It wasn't let's... our meltdown. It was some server. Going uh, on. Well, no, I think it, it's possible it was the vMix here because when I rebooted, uh, everything just kind of cleaned up, but it's really hard to You're on Sputnik again, huh? Yeah, exactly, Sputnik. And maybe uh, you know what? Solar flares. I am bl- blaming solar flares. Uh, we're supposed to be going into a period of that now, aren't we, Rick? Uh, well, Mercury's in retrograde too. I heard. Yeah, but that's always the case. Uh, I think <laughs> Mercury's always in retrograde somewhere so- in the. So, Rick, um, you'll find this interesting. You probably already know this. I got about uh, eight-tenths of an inch of rain yesterday, which I'm very happy about, which matched what Midway got. So I was in that same path. But uh, Peggy... I sent you guys a a map that shows all the detailed rain. You may want to check your email. Um, It may may be in there. Because I got a feeling you may have gotten more rain, Mike, because the rain was coming down sideways. Yeah, and right by the lake, there was no rain. No. Yeah, yeah. In fact, up in areas of Lake County, um, literally from where you are, pegged northeastward, or right along the lakefront, yep. was like literally, like literally less than a tenth of an inch. Um, we got about three quarters of an inch here in Evanston, uh, an inch and a half at O'Hare, two point four nine in Elk Grove. But, wow. Um, it looks like about yeah, it looks like about an inch south and west of midway airport so you're right mike looking at some of these totals you probably got about eight tenths of an inch yeah yeah 
And, and he had a downspout misadventure in the park. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my downspout came off in the middle of it, so uh, on the back porch. So I was up there reaching around and getting soaked from uh, my my downspout, which was uh, that was an adventure. Yeah, yeah. but I, I was happy to get wet. You know, it's, it was nice to 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 actually have rain dancing I, in the rain. Yes, and 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 I guess the question is. Um, is it going to make any difference um, to get an inch of rain in certain spots? And and, and I would uh, hazard to guess that the answer is no, really, because Peggy didn't get anything. And there's still areas that didn't get anything at all, really. Yeah. And it was interesting because um, I sent an email to a friend of mine who's an agricultural meteorologist, and he sent me some really amazing stuff, which shows not only the areas that got rain, uh, but the precipitation um, above or below normal over the last 30 days with layers of the highest producing counties in Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota of corn. So mm-hmm. one of the things we do, what's called GIS, which is geographic information systems, is that we can actually layer different regions of how much precipitation you're supposed to get, how much you actually got, and then the areas of concern. And right now, um, most of Lake County and McHenry County got probably like literally less than a tenth of an inch of rain over the last couple of days, whereas areas out by DeKalb, Western, Cook, Queen, Kendall, those areas got, um, in some areas, almost two to three inches of rain. So it depends on where you were. The good news is that where they really needed the rain in some of the far western sections of the Chicago metro area, meaning the Corn Belt areas, um, they got the rain. And mm-hmm. this is a really sensitive time to keep not only the ground or the topsoil moist, but to keep the evaporation rates from exceeding these really, really high levels that we've had over the last couple of days. You know, on Wednesday, Mike and Peg, Rockford got up to 97 degrees. On Thursday, they got to 99. I have never wow. seen such locally high temperatures due to the fact that the ground was so dry, you literally almost had like like a suburban or rural heat island where the ground was basically like concrete. And because you're getting so warm, obviously the evaporation rate's really high. So in some way, shape, and form, the two to three inches of rain in the Corn Belt areas of Illinois helped out a lot. However, when you go into Western Illinois, they got nothing. You got most of Northern Iowa, they got nothing. Um, in parts of southern Minnesota and southern Wisconsin, they got nothing. So this was feast or famine, but it was more famine than feast. You know, you mentioned the, that those temps, and I saw that the other day, uh, the the Rockford 99, and I thought, that's got to be, that can't be right, uh, because the other temperatures were in, like, the low 90s, 91, 92. Uh, actually, actually, McHenry did make it up to 95, and Elgin was 96. So okay. when I look at that Rockford number, I'm thinking, first of all, they're probably going to go out there and measure um, or recal- recalibrate the thermometer because both of those measurements did break a record. And whenever you break a record, you recalibrate to make sure – or not recalibrate, but you calibrate it to make sure that it's a, a true record. So I would mm-hmm. not be surprised if the Weather Service goes out there and calibrates it, but it's not like this came from a Podunk airport. Rockford's yeah. – you know, it, it, it's got pretty decent – you know, ASOS equipment, and I would not be surprised if that record stands. What's interesting also is that the 1.5 inches of rain that O'Hare got yesterday was a record for the day. 
So we had wow. not had a drop of rain at O'Hare um, for literally three weeks, and we get it all at once. It's a record. Um, and then, I don't know if you noticed this also, Mike, because you got eight, eight tenths of an inch of rain. We had about a half inch here in Evanston, and the sidewalks were flooded because it came down so hard. The ground was so hard. It couldn't yeah. soak into the ground, so it ran off. Yeah. So this was almost the type of rain that you don't want during a drought. You want a nice, steady soaking because uh, most of the rain probably ran off back into the sewers. Yeah, that was what the the guy was saying last night on uh, on CBS, and uh, I was impressed that he he really was paying attention to the drought conditions and and the idea that boy, wouldn't it be better if we got a nice gentle rain? But you know, we got what we got, and this is what yeah. you. What you sent me, oops, I thought that I had that set up, but let's go here. This is the radar. Yeah, isn't that great? This is the, the and I, you know, it was funny because about three o'clock yesterday afternoon, I took a screenshot of radar myself, and then you sent this, so I thought I'd go with this. Um, uh, and there was this blob over Chicago and pretty much nowhere else, as, as you're yeah. seeing here. Um, and that was uh, amazing uh, to see. It just, and it, and it, and I, and I went back and looked at the radar as it uh, developed. The loop, yeah. yeah, the loop. At one o'clock, there was nothing. No, um, no. And then suddenly there was this. So, uh, you know, if you look at if you look at the bottom of the screen there, and this is really good, you know, good, um, you know, kind of tutorial for your listeners. It says storm total accumulation. So what the Doppler radar does is it can literally catalog where the precipitation was moving, how much was coming down. And if you, you know, just basically, if you just basically go into the program and say, tell me how much rain fell at the time, it'll give you that information. So at the bottom of the screen there, it says 2210 and 2210 is actually 510 in the afternoon. So if I would have ran this out to about 6.30 or 7 o'clock, it probably would have shown more rain across Southern Will and Kanky County, but the bottom line is you can actually look at the colors in that area of northeastern DuPage County and western Cook County, and there's one little area of like a yellow, and that corresponds on the right side to about 2.56 inches of rain. Yeah. So the fact that someone's rain gauge said 2.48 and it says 2.56 um, makes not only the person who has the rain gauge happy, but also the weather service happy because it means both pieces of instrumentation are the same, which means that, that much that's how much rain fell. But again, if Peg, if you can find your area where you live, you can see that you got literally point one, if that point oh five inches of rain. You probably heard a lot more thunder uh, than you yeah, saw raindrops. <laughs> a lot of thunder. And and again, all of this was was built off of the lake breeze. So the fact that we had this weak cool front passing through the area and you had the lake breeze, where the lake breeze intersected the cool front is where you had the thunderstorms develop. Now, back on Tuesday and Wednesday, the upper level winds were basically out of the east. So any storms that developed went west. Now, when the upper level wind northwest, any storms that developed along that convergence zone basically moved from the northwest to the southeast. And as typically is the case, if you have light enough winds to have a lake breeze push that far west, Typically, the winds in the upper-level atmosphere are just as light. So you're going to get very slow-moving, drenching downpours, um, and that's exactly what we got yesterday. So in these type of situations, if after a while as a meteorologist you kind of know what type of scenario you're in, you know that the rain you're going to get is basically slow-moving, 
isolated, heavy rainfall that's going to benefit very few people. Uh, I want to show you something. I, I, I put this up last week, and uh, I want to do this comparison. Uh, let's why, And I set these, and of course they're not working, but there we go. Here's the U.S. drought monitor, but that's and look at the, the date on it, June 2nd, 2020. Yeah, last year. Yeah, yeah. That's And uh, this is something you wrote to us about uh, because there was uh, an article in the New York Times this week uh, looking at the drought conditions over the last 20 years. And you wrote back to them and said, that's not a long time. I thought that was pretty no. funny that, no. that you did this. And no. then if you look at the comparison, that's last year. Uh, this is this year. Uh and you yeah. can see the, that's that's quite a difference. Let's let's go mm-hmm. back. That's last year. Uh, the Midwest, obviously, yeah. not much going on in the Midwest there. But this year, yeah. Uh, that's... And, and you know, we've been we've been talking about this for three months because right. we knew that they had they had you know dry conditions last year. They had dry conditions in the fall. They had dry conditions um, in the winter. And I kept saying, if they don't get some sort of organized rain in March, April, and May, by the time we get to June, this is going to become a national news story. And now everybody is covering it. But I thought what was most amazing, Mike and Peg, was not only was this a story on the New York Times climate website, if Mm -hmm. you go to today's paper, they literally have every single one of those maps of the last 20 years on the cover, the front cover, the front page of the New York Times. I've never seen this before. Yeah, and I and I think what I think what they're driving the point home is that when the Republicans came back with their plan for infrastructure, they said, "Why is there climate change funding in infrastructure? Climate change has nothing to do with infrastructure." And I'm thinking to myself, "Are you guys on another planet? Have you seen what is happening out in California with their reservoirs? With the fact that now you have the grid system being stressed?" where you have 6 million more people living in that state? Have you looked at the areas of Lake Mead? Have you looked at the Glen Canyon Dam? All of that is infrastructure that is being impacted by short-term extreme weather events caused by a changing and more variable climate. So if, if, they, pres- per, if they pronounce themselves to be conservative mm-hmm. and thinking about the environment, that's not being conservative because someone who is conservative learns how to conserve the environment, not use it up for what it is. So when the Biden administration and the Obama administration thought about climate change from an infrastructure plan, it means building things that will become resilient to an extreme climate. What's going on in California right now is the fact that they are not going to be able to get through this unless they start to think being more resilient from an infrastructure plan. And I know California is doing it, but the fact that the Trump administration said it'll get cooler or will rebuild, that's not thinking right. What Biden is doing with his infrastructure plan, putting funds in there for for climate change is the smart approach. Whether or not he's going to get that with the compromise deal is another thing. Yeah, let's and let's look at this. Uh, and I'm sure this is not going to. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. And I, I set it up and then it works. Yeah, sure. it's working. But there you go. This is the uh, Midwest yeah. drought map, <clears throat> and um, it has expanded over the last week. 
Are you okay? You, I, I'm... Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see it. Okay, um, all right. So yeah. again, when you, when, you, when you talk to a farmer, if a farmer knows that they're going to be in for a hot, dry summer, they know that they're going to plant a certain type of crop, drought-resistant, heat-resistant. That means that from an infrastructure standpoint, a farmer is thinking how be is thinking about how to be more resilient to extreme climate. It's the same thing, whether or not you're building something or growing something. It's all about the infrastructure plan. So the fact that these Republicans, and I wish I can call them someone else, but I'm being nice because it's Sunday. We're on live broadcast here. Um, the fact that they go, I can't believe the Democrats put something in there about climate change and an infrastructure bill. It's part of it. It's, it's part of the whole freaking plan that when you see that much drought now, even if you compare it to 2000, California had 32 million people. There's now almost 40 million people in that state. You have more houses. You have more stores. You have more restaurants. You have more demand on electricity. And now you have much less water than you had before. So, in fact, if you're carrying a jug of 50 gallons of water, in the year 2000, you probably had literally only 40 gallons of water. Now you have probably only 30 for that 50 gallons of water. So we need so much more help from a standpoint of infrastructure for the future when you start to think about some of these extreme weather events, which are clearly impacting the largest state and the largest agricultural state in the United States. We haven't even talked about that yet. You know, when people think drought, they go, I won't be able to water my lawn. I won't be able to, you know, go to the tap and just go like that with a glass of water. But think about the farmers. If you want, next week I could do a little bit more digging. We could talk about that because we've been kind of focusing about here in the Midwest. But we can easily talk about what's going on. And and high water crops, too. Absolutely. If you're driven across the Sacramento Valley in like the month of August, you don't see just one row of corn that's six feet high. You see one that's two feet high, four feet high, six feet high, because they literally plant almost 10 months out of the year. So that's that much more intensive from a standpoint of demand for water than we have here in the Midwest, kind of like what Peg was alluding to. Yeah. Um, and I've seen uh, stories about where they're ordering people to stop watering lawns. In, in, in oh, God, certain, yeah. 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 That, that, that car washes, you don't see car washes. They have these big, like, um, sweeping brooms that basically brushes the dust off your car. Forget about car washes. So... <laughs> Um, no, I'm serious. You know, I've, not, I've, not, I've not seen that. This yeah. is something new to me. I've never oh, heard. Yeah. Of it. Oh yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no car washes in California during during this time of the year. Um, it's all like you see these brushless car washes. Uh, they have waterless car washes in California this time of the year. It sounds weird, but it's a big freaking deal, and it's something that we've seen for the last three or four months. They've been they've been you know knowing about this for a long, long time. Um, here though, out drought. I still think for the Chicagoland area. Um, we're going to get through this okay. It's more so the areas west of DeKalb, Kendall County, Iroquois County, LaSalle County. Those are the areas that are going to be somewhat impacted. But the bottom line is what the recent rain did, it'll slow down the evaporation rate. The good news is that we head into a cooler pattern as we transition into the forecast. Um, One cool front came through. You can tell that the dew point temperatures are much lower. I think the dews right now are in the upper 50s. Yes, it is time. They were probably around 70 degrees, so we'll get a little bit of a break on the humidity. But then a second cool front comes through tomorrow, 
and we'll see the temperatures most likely really drop off along the lakefront uh, down probably into the low to mid-70s. The good news is that I've been swimming in the lake every day. It's almost 70 degrees right along the shoreline. Wow. It's about as nice as it yeah, be. I saw oh, 67 Wilmette Harbor the other day. Yeah, yeah. and I think the other day uh, they had almost 70 degrees, especially in the morning when you have these warm nights. Once you mm-hmm. get a little bit of wind going, that temperature during the day will actually come down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but I would not be surprised if over the next five days we see temperatures right around maybe 80 to 81 degrees, so almost 10 degrees cooler than what we have been. But more importantly, between now and most likely the next seven days, that much rain. That's it. We're well, right well, back into the I've track. got I've got this map that uh, you you sent of the uh, uh, seven day precipitation, and uh, if it's light green, and it means is, this, ver- is, this is the forecast. It is a yeah, forecast, right? So very little, a uh, little bit up mm-hmm. in uh, Wisconsin and. Uh, but and and into Michigan too, uh, which is not a bad thing. Uh, but right, he- but, but again, if you look at and what and what's really interesting, what my friend does who works in the agricultural field, what they'll do is they'll take the data from this level or from this layer, and they'll overlay it on the areas that have been in drought, and then overlay it in the areas where you have corn. So then mm-hmm. you can give the user a much better way of seeing where it's been dry, where there's corn, and how much rain is going to fall over the next, you know, week or so. And if you yeah. take this lane and you put it over the areas that I showed you earlier, it's bad news. <laughs> Just about everybody who needs the rain over the next seven days is not going to get it. And you're going to see temperatures exceed 115 degrees in places like Vegas and Phoenix. Their normal high this time of year is about 102 and 103, and their record's about 110 to 111. And this is, this is just Bad news. And it's only June 11th. This is not July 11th or yeah. August 11th. June 11th. We have, we have easily June, July, and August. We have three months of this. Um, so anyway, go, going back, I know because we got to get going here, going back to the email that I sent to the author of the article for the New York Times, yeah. I haven't got a response. I'm sure I will. I just basically said, look, 20 years of drought data is really not a lot. You got to go back 100 years and then see these trends. In addition to that, look at the trend also demand of agriculture, as Peg was alluding to, and then look at the demand of population. So you can actually look at population centers. And I'm probably giving her, I'm probably giving her an assignment. She really does. She's like, you're not my editor. Who are you? But I think it'd be kind of interesting. But I think it'd be kind of interesting to show how you can layer different areas of where the drought has been and where it's where it's been in the last 20 years and where it's going to be more concentrated from an impact standpoint, yeah. meaning population growth, agricultural growth, and more so electricity growth. And one of the things I teach in my climate change class is that most of California gets their electricity from hydroelectric power. When you have those reservoirs going way down, what happens to your ability to produce hydroelectric power? That goes down as well. What do you end up using to generate electricity? Natural gas. California has very little in the way of coal. Like literally 5% of their power comes from coal. So what you're going to see is a spike in natural gas prices due to the fact that their ability to generate electricity from hydroelectric power goes down. I've seen this before. And they're going to start grabbing electricity most likely from Oregon, 
and also from Washington State as well. So California did it right years ago, where Texas did not. Remember, Texas is by itself. California is gritted with everybody else, like every other smart-thinking state. So they'll be able to get their power from other states. But the bottom line is, when you don't have the water in the reservoirs, you don't have hydroelectric power. And since they get most of their electricity from hydro, what do you do? You have to switch over to natural gas. So and you'll probably see a spike in natural gas as well. And you anticipate that spike in natural gas prices to be uh, countrywide or just in California? You know, it, it, it depends because as long as you are able to continue the delivery in certain areas of like, um, in other words, if the Northeast, which is what they have, then you're going to see a drop off in demand there. And then you'll see that shell game push west. Since we'll get a drop off here, you'll see that shell game push west. But I would not be surprised if it starts to get warm again, basically Midwest and Northeast spike uh, most likely probably by, I don't know, the end of the week. Uh, but it'll it'll definitely it'll definitely come um, it'll definitely come very once the demand goes nationwide. Right now, the Northeast is cooled off, which is a good thing because they were in the nineties as well last week. Yeah. All right. Well, let's give us a forecast and uh, we'll get out of All here. Right. If you're inside today, you're a loser. <laughs> it, it's about as nice as I've seen around here in about a week. Uh, absolutely picture perfect. Two points in the lower sixties today. Temperatures in the lower eighties. Uh, second front comes through tomorrow. That'll shift off the lake. So we'll have a nice breeze coming down the lake. The good news is that the lake is warmed up along the shoreline. However, you'll notice that if you do go in the water today, it'll probably be about 68 degrees. If you go in tomorrow, it'll be about 65. And you go in on Tuesday, it'll be about 62. It's going to have to get mixing. So the cooler yeah. water is dripped offshore. But, but still, if you can get down to the lakefront today, it's gorgeous. And then literally dry weather, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Could be some lake effect clouds, as we've seen off and on the last couple of mornings. Uh, but other than that, no rain between now and probably, I would say, next Friday. So the next five days look to be rain-free. I know in the areas that got the rain, uh, the grass greened up. And I don't know if you noticed this, Mike. Did, yeah. you, did you notice that smell of, of, of ozone and oh, nitrogen yeah. in the areas? Yep. Right, Peggy? Yep. Even where it, even where it did rain, and probably where it didn't rain, you probably smelled it even more so, right, Big? I think it's the whole area, probably. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It was almost like someone, like, cut open an, an onion and just went like that into the air. It was kind of cool. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's going to be a beautiful week, so um, <laughs> enjoy it if you can, uh, and let's hope we get some rain next weekend. I'll do another dance for you. All right, appreciate it. All right, talk to you then, Rick. Take care. Thanks, Rick. All right. Um, wow. I think we got to get out of here. I'm, I'm watching these uh, <laughs> these uh, buttons and lights here, and it streams on, it streams off, and so we are going to get out of here. Uh, our thanks to our, our wonderful guests today, Suzanne Malik McKenna and Sandra Henry, obviously Rick DeMaio, uh, our wonderful listeners who are, are trying to stick with us through the stream, and we really do appreciate that. Um, Lagata the cat, who was around here someplace, has disappeared. I don't know where Basil the dog is. Uh, Kathleen is on the front porch. <laughs> Kathleen is doing yo yo person's work. Is that a word? Oh well. Uh, anyway, uh, until next time, go green or go home.
Uh, Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. (laughs) 